with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptised, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common." And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. We're going to start off by um, sharing in the Lord's table together before I bring the message. And um, I, I think I'm doing it this way because of a reason, because sometimes God will take us into places where we learn new things and he'll bring us insight that we probably would never really grasp before. And... That happened to me this week. On Friday, I've done one of the toughest things that I've ever done in my life. And um, I did something that I thought would be quite easy, but it turned out to be something that was very difficult. Um, I haven't seen my mother in about eight months. It was two years ago, my mother got diagnosed with um, dementia. And I remember she rang me up in Queensland and spoke to me because she was quite concerned because our grandma had, um, her mum had dementia and, you know, in her 90s and 
Gran got quite abusive and forgot people and um, everything like that. And my mum rang me up and said, Garth, I'm really worried that I'll do that to Kevin, which is my stepdad, or, or to me. And I said, oh, mum, don't worry about it. You know, I said, we know that if that happens, it's not you, it's the disease. You know, it's, it's easy. It's not you, mum. If we see that, um, it's the disease. Well, as I said, my mum got put into a home about three months ago. And um, as I said, I saw mum when I visited um, down from Melbourne last time. It was about eight months ago. And so I went to the home and I tell you, I was completely shocked. Um, my stepdad warned me. He said, your mum's gone downhill quite quickly. Um, and so I saw my mum and she's got no comprehension of anything. You know, she doesn't really know what day it is. She walked around padding tables and, um, and to see this was, was quite hard. And, um, you know, I've never ever in my life heard my mum swear, yet every second word that came out of my mum was some of the foulest language I've heard. And I kept saying, Garth, it's all right. It's all right. It's not her. It's the disease. Just keep seeing it's the disease and try and see mum as it used to be. But, man, I found it really, really hard. As much as I can say I know it's the disease, I found it really difficult to try and separate the two and just try and disown what I was seeing in front of me and to focus on something else. And I got to thinking, I said, God, is that what it's like for you? <laughs> because we're all tarnished with this thing called sin. We are all, sometimes, we just live life for ourselves. And um, is God like that? Does God struggle to see us and to divorce us from sin? And I had the revelation or realisation that no, he doesn't. God doesn't struggle because whenever God looks at us, he sees his son. Whenever God looks at us, he sees first and foremost the blood of his son. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee, but he says, never ever think that the blood of Christ was shed for you. He says the blood of Christ was shed for God because it's God who sees the blood. It's like the Passover. He says it's God who looks at the blood. And he says, so whenever God looks at us, he sees the blood. But Watchman Nee said, what is for us is we see the cross. And we see the price that has been paid for us. And he said, that's what it's about. And so as much as Friday, I struggled and I, I couldn't separate the two. I couldn't separate the disease and try and pretend that this was the mother I once knew. I struggled. God's not like that. What we're about to celebrate, God stands there and declares you righteous, 100% righteous before him. And he says there is no darkness in him at all. I find it hard to understand. I understand it from a theological point of view, but to know that God sees us as perfect. Do you know, um, I had someone once say to me, you know, people say justification is just as you've never sinned. And they said, it's wrong. They said, don't ever believe that. They said, it's much deeper than that. They said, justification is just as you've done everything right. Every day you wake up because of what Jesus has done, you have done everything right before God. Everything. You have been made righteous. And that's what we celebrate today. That's what we come and that's why we do what we do here every Sunday morning because it is something that we should never take for granted and it is something that we should always be thankful for. As Greg just prayed, thank you for that amazing grace.
I've asked Frank to come and play for us today as uh, we come and take the elements. So please feel free to come and take and if someone can help out as well as you prepare yourself. Father God in heaven, I thank you for your amazing, your incredible, your overflowing, undescribable grace. I thank you for that you are the one that has made a way for us to be right with you. You're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You're the creator of this universe. You are the holy of holiest. And yet you've made a right for us, mere human beings, sinful people that rejected you to come back and to share in your glory. Father, we thank you that we can celebrate that today. And I pray you'll protect our hearts because Satan wants to rob us of that. I pray that you will forever help us see that wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Help us to know that we are perfect before your eyes. We are your children. We are co-heirs with Christ. We thank you that we can come together and celebrate this as family. In Jesus' name, amen. Please drink. So I was talking to someone about the family camp and um, I was Gary and I looked at the date and I thought, oh, is that grand final weekend? And they said, oh, no, 
He said, no, don't worry. We know we'd never, ever do that. And, um, yeah. But it is the prelims. So, um, and I think the table is pretty much set with the first and second team. So there is a quiet chance that Port Adelaide will be in a prelim final. Um, I believe it's our God-given right not to watch football um, on that weekend um, while we're at the camp. Um, if it was someone else, they would have to... No, just kidding. Um, sorry. Um, it's good to be back preaching again with you, even though it's only been two weeks since I, I last uh, preached here, but it seems like it's been quite a while. And, um, but I'm not sure if you can preach on what I preached on last time, but I preached on... Did I turn this on? Yep. I preached on this topic. What is church? And I said there's a lot of confusion about this question. Because the church conjures up all types of different thoughts and feelings for people. Some positive, some negative. People also go to church for very different reasons and churches exist for very different reasons. But within all this confusion, even with all the different thoughts and feelings people have, I said ultimately, from a biblical point of view, this is how I would describe the church. The church has a group of people who have been separated from the world They've committed their life to God. They've made Christ their ruler. And in their devotion to that, they come together as a church and they have a loving, living union with one another. And this is all done not necessarily just for our benefit, but to reflect the glory of God. And that's why I think the church should hold a very special place in the life of a Christian. The church should be something we treasure. It is in the church that we receive the teaching and training for how we can be the people that God has called us to be. It is in the church that we discover and live out our true life purposes of serving God and serving others. I was going so far as to say, when it is functioning properly, the church of Jesus Christ is one of the greatest hopes for the world. It is, only, it is the only organisation that has ever existed that is capable of healing broken lives, pointing people to God, and fulfilling the deepest longing of souls. That's what the church should be about. I made the comment many times over the years, I truly believe that whenever someone walks into a church, regardless of what situations, regardless of what circumstances they're coming from, they should feel and receive something walking into a church that they don't feel or receive in any other place they walk into. And that is grace. It is in the church that the rejected should find acceptance. The sinners should receive forgiveness. And the lonely should experience love. The lost, those without a relationship with Jesus, will have the gospel preached to them and receive the opportunity to accept Christ as their saviour. That's why I say when it's functioning properly, the church of Jesus Christ is one of the greatest hopes for this world. So as you can see, when it comes to my view of the church, I say we have a big God-given obligation to fulfill. I think it's for this very reason that I've decided to spend some time over the next eight weeks talking about what is a genuine church and what are the characteristics of a genuine church. Or more than importantly, what does a genuine church look like that is functioning well? And I guess you've worked out from our reading today to help us discover what, positive, what a positive functioning church looks like. 
I'm going to look at the first group of people after Jesus who committed their life to God, made Jesus Christ ruler of their life, and came together. Those 3,000 people that formed the first spirit-filled church in Acts chapter 2. We're told, as you heard, that they heard the message from Peter and the apostles. And they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what should we do in response to this? They heard it, and that was their response. And Peter said, Repent, be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. They accepted the message. Many were converted to faith and were baptised. These new believers were called to be separated from the world. They committed their life to God. They made Jesus Christ their ruler. And out of that, this church, the early church, was born. Over the next few weeks, as we study this first church in Acts chapter 2, we will see how they demonstrate for us the characteristics needed to be a genuine church. But my hope in doing this really isn't just a history lesson, because I'm sure you've all heard this story many times. I hope you will gain a better understanding of my view of church, and especially the role it should play in our society. What fundamental things do I believe the church should hold to, to make it a genuine church? Being new, a lot of you won't understand or know what I believe, and so I think it's a good idea for me to share some of those things from here. But more importantly, my hope and prayer in doing this is as we look at the accounts, attitudes and actions of this early church, we bring it home and we start to think about our church, Aldinga Bay Baptist Church. Or more importantly, as we do this over the next eight weeks, we should continually ask ourselves this question, what kind of church does God want us to be? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Or do you just come to church? What kind of church does God want us to be? And if he's got you here, then you are a part of that. I mean, it's not enough that we come to this building on Sunday mornings if we fail to be the church that God wants us to be. It's not enough that we come and sing songs, take communion, give our tithes and offerings. It's not enough that we sit through a sermon. It's not enough that we even just come to church regularly if we fail to be the church that God wants or Dinga Bay Baptist to be. If that is the case, we're meeting in vain. So for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about the type of church God wants us to be. And how can we know it? By looking at Acts. We can see right off the bat, the first thing that this church is, he says they were devoted. A genuine church is devoted. You'll notice straight away that Luke opening words, after they all come together and be baptised, he says they were devoted. That's the first thing he says about them. In these verses, he is revealing to us what these followers of Jesus were devoted to. He says they were devoted to what? To teaching, fellowship, communion and prayer. In the Greek text, this word devoted means to hold fast to something, to continue it in perseverance. It is to run with it with perseverance. In other words, they persevered in all these activities, not just one or two of these activities as we might do today. They devoted themselves to all four. The context indicates that these activities were not just some form of religious ceremony that they followed. 
These were practices adopted so widely by these individual believers that when they came together, it characterised the entire 3,000 of them. They were devoted to these things. These four activities taken together form the foundation of personal and corporate life in the early church. If people say, what was the church? What did they focus on? They're the four things. The believers devoted themselves to the spiritual instruction and transforming practices. And today, as Luke tells us, we're going to look at the first one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. For me, straight away, if that's what they devoted themselves to, then I believe this. A genuine church needs to be teachable. I find it interesting that Luke's opening statement about this group of people is this. There are a lot of other things Luke could have said about this group. Nevertheless, the first thing Luke says that this group was devoted to was the teaching. In other words, this was a learning, studying group of people. A group of guys that were there. Why do I find it interesting that this was the first thing he said? Well, Luke stresses that in the early days, in spite of these believers having seen some great experiences, the great spiritual happenings of Pentecost, they were all there. The disciples devoted themselves first to the teaching of the apostles. It could have been easy and a great temptation for these early believers to look back at Pentecost and focus on that experience. To look back there and think, wow, how good was that? How come that's not happening anymore? They might have remembered the way the Holy Spirit came. They could recall how he used them to speak to those in Jerusalem and with amazement how they heard his or, own, his or her own languages. It would have been so easy for these Christian followers to have longed to experience something like that again. They could have quite easily devoted into hoping the Lord would do something miraculously like that again. But that's not what we find. That's not what Luke says. Luke's opening statement about this church reveals to us they're not rejoicing in their past experiences. Instead, we find them rejoicing in the word of God, in the apostles' teaching. While it's true wonders and signs accompanied the apostles' ministry, the church did not devote themselves to these things. Even though these new converts witnessed many miracles, they devoted themselves first and foremost to the apostles' teaching. Why? Well, for very good reason. These new converts were people who were sincere in what they believed. Just like ordinary people of the day, most of them had been religious people who come to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage this day. Others were local people who had rooms to let, or they had bed and breakfast establishments to cater for all the pilgrims that were coming from all over the Mediterranean basin. These 3,000 converts made up a cross-section of people from the Middle East. But predominantly, most of them would have been Jewish people. Old Testament believers. But none of the 3,000 whom Luke is describing here were originally Christians or had been Christians before this very day. Breakfast time, they were Jewish. By supper time, they repented and devoted themselves to Christ. They would have been full of questions after hearing all this. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? What did he do? What did he say? What do you mean he spoke of destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days? 
What did he do? Did he really cleanse lepers? Did he actually really raise people from the dead? Why did he die then? Did he really rise from the dead? Where is he now? And so on and so on and so on. They would be like little kids just wanting to know. While it's true the apostles had no particular credentials as teachers in terms of being recognised religious authorities, none of the apostles had formal re religious training. They'd been fishermen, tax collectors and ordinary people in their towns. The apostles did have one qualification though that was clear to these new believers. A qualification that set them apart from everyone else. They had experience of being with Jesus and being taught by him directly. So it was the apostles' teaching that came with the power and authority of Jesus because they were the ones who were with him. As I said, these new converts would have heaps of questions about Jesus and the apostles had the authority and the commissioning from the Lord to answer those questions. They were the ones he called. They could not only convert any they could not convert anyone themselves, but they could, by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, recount the life and teaching of their Lord and Jesus that they'd spent those times with. They could explain the greatest three year period in history of the world, like no one else. They could explain firsthand about the remarkable life and public ministry that they saw and how they truly believed Jesus was the Son of God. For this reason, these new converts were careful to listen and put into practice exactly what they said. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching referred to what the apostles preached and taught about Jesus. His words, his deeds, his atoning death and resurrection. This drew on parts of the Old Testament, the only Bible they had, to explain Jesus' identity, life and ministry. That's what they would have sat through. Their gatherings weren't just holy huddles of people coming together for informal discussion. Instruction was an important part of their growth. Both doctrine and application were critical, critical to these early believers. They needed to hear and know not only what Jesus had done for them, they needed to hear and know what Jesus demanded of them now that they devoted their life to him. These new believers needed instruction. They needed teachers committed to equipping them for the work of the ministry that they are about to go out and do. Although they were no longer blind to the truth, they needed teaching to grow. They needed teachers who would be appointed to the offers of apostleship to give it to them. The first apostles enjoyed a unique place among these early believers, being the one chosen by God, trained by Jesus, and given the awesome responsibility of laying down the foundation of which the rest of the faith would be built. The early believers did not only recognise the authority of the apostles, they devoted themselves not only to hearing it, they devoted themselves to it. They held fast, continued, and persevered in their teaching. Now you may say, yeah, that's all well and good for them. How is it possible for us today to focus on apostolic teaching? We live in a different age. We live thousands of years after his teaching. We have no one alive today who holds the same status. Peter is not with us. James has been martyred. John's died and so have all the others. Even Paul who came along later has gone. How can we do it? Well, we do have the Bible, the word of God, which includes the teaching of the apostles. These men gave us the New Testament. 
This is the deposit of their teaching and greatest of all. When it comes to the collection of books that we now call the Old New Testament, the criteria which the New Testament canon was formed was this. Did they come from the apostles and bore witness to them? That was one of the criteria to get into the New Testament canon. In today's language, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching would be be devoted to the word of God. The Bible and its message it contains about Jesus. To, tro- to quote John Stott, he says, if we want to devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings today, we should focus first and foremost on Jesus and as he is presented in the Gospels and further explained in the epistles. Okay, let's put some meat into this sandwich. If we want to devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings today, what are some practical ways to do this? Let's bring it home. How can we be devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the Bible? What things should we do as a church to help people do the same? Well, let me give you three. Firstly, we should regularly attend a church where the Bible is honoured. How does a church honour the Bible? By faithfully preaching and teaching that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now I know I'm preaching to the converted at this point. I know many of you attend this church because you place high value on the authority of scripture. Many of you have also had the appreciation of a particular kind of teaching that has taken place in this church over the years. However, while that is true for most of us, I know some, maybe in this church and others, outside, some argue that the Christian church has too high of emphasis today on teaching. They argue that knowledge puffs us up, so we become less focused on loving others. I've had a friend say to me, forget about the teaching. If you want to teach them, teach them how to love and accept others. Then that would help reap the harvest. While I see some fairness in that critique, I don't believe the church needs less teaching. (laughs) I don't believe the church needs to go away from honouring God and his word. Our teaching doesn't need to be weakened. Our teaching needs to be strengthened. We shouldn't soften our stance for truth. We should make it more solid every time we meet because we live in a world that needs truth. As culture diminishes the value of God's word, we should cherish it even more. There is no such thing as having too much truth. Unfortunately, some churches and members of churches are turning away from being devoted to the word of God. As a result, they needlessly miss out on the great blessings that God wants to give them. But even greater is they run the risk of not fulfilling God's purposes for their lives and for the life of their church. When a church has a devotion to the apostles' teaching, it won't have a devotion to a particular experience. It won't have a devotion to dramatic results. It will have a devotion to what it means to be devoted to God. And it will be protective of the apostles' teaching. It will stand up against those especially who want to twist and manipulate the truth. When opposing views are presented, churches devoted to the word of God won't say, well, each to their own. You go and do that. That's, that's fine. We'll do this. All truth is relative. We will be devoted to God's word, not the word 
of our culture. Doctrine, philosophy, and morality must all be governed by the Word of God. I'm not saying we should ignore everything else, but what I'm saying is it should have a place that is far important in the life of ourselves and our church. The truth that the apostles taught is worth defending. They died for it. You cannot have too much truth. A genuine church is always going to be a Bible-studying, Bible-believing church. Those two go together. So the first way to be devoted to apostles' teaching, regularly attend a church where the Bible is honoured as God's word and written faithfully and taught. Another way we can be devoted to the apostles' teaching is no. What is true for the church is also true for you. So in addition to a regularly attending church where the Bible is honoured as God's word, we should regularly read it and honour as God's word in our day-to-day lives. Christians are people of the book. Why? Because it's the message is life. The message is health. The message is happiness. Through the scriptures, we learn about God's character, his great deeds, his love for us, his will for us, his ways, his promises, and so, so much more. The Holy Spirit uses the truth of the apostles' teaching we find in scripture as a major part of the process of our transformation day by day. What transformation? Of us becoming conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. He uses the word. That's why as Christians, we are always encouraged to pray before we open and study the word. We ask the Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to understand the meaning of his word and how it applies to our lives. As the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. The final way we can be devoted to the apostles' teaching is understanding in addition to regularly reading, honouring and asking the Holy Spirit's help, we must do something else. We must regularly come with an attitude to transform ourselves. This does not mean that through our own efforts or through our own source of transformation, but it does mean that we have an important part to play in this process. Ultimately, God is the source of our transformation, but he does it through a process that requires us to play a vital and essential role. That's why we should always remember, whenever we open up the word of God, the goal of devoting ourselves to its teaching is not simply to gain information. A critical and important as that may be, our goal is to know God more. Our goal is to be teachable. Our goal is to learn new things. Our goal is to become more Christ-like. This is the essence of why we devote ourselves to the scriptures for those reasons. We need to come with a deliberate, decided intention to obey whatever God shows us to be his will. As we earnestly seek God in this manner, he will communicate with us in a very special personal way. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. To quote John Stott again, he says, A Spirit-filled church is a New Testament church in the sense that it studies and submits to the New Testament instructions. In other words, God uses means of his Word and his grace to bring about growth and obedience. Now you may say, yeah, we know all that. Why am I focusing on this? How well are we with something? Because for me, 
the most important thing for me today is this word, teachable. I said a genuine church is a teachable church. What comes to your mind when you hear that word, teachable? Well, for me, it's all about letting God change us. Do you know, I have changed my mind over certain theological points over the years. The reason? Other people have taught or brought out things to me that I hadn't seen before. Or they've actually brought out things and I think, yeah, that's true. Do you know, I have some Christian friends who don't have a teachable spirit. They believe what they believe and they're unmovable. Full stop. They are so dogmatic that they don't change in anything. They, then they go even further and they reject people who have a different understanding to them. That's dangerous. I've said to these people, oh, have you ever read and gone and studied this person? No, I do not read. The only people I read is this person, this person, this person. How can you learn? How can God change you if you're not open to be teachable? Some of you may know him, but um, there was a guy at Christie's Beach Baptist who did a lot of study on the theology of divorce and remarriage. And uh, his name was Andy Palm. And um, I've used some of his work over the years. And when I was in Queensland, the church asked me, can I preach on this topic of divorce and remarriage? And I said, no worries. So I rang Andy. And I said, Andy, I said, I need your help again. You know, got any? And he said, oh, Garth, I'm no longer the expert in the field. He said, there's a guy from Tyndale House in England, and uh, Dr. Einstein Brewer. And um, he said he's, he's done his PhD in Jewish literature and divorce and remarriage, according to Jewish literature. And so he sent me a book or told me to go and buy a book. And so I got this book and I read it. And I rang Andy back and I thanked him because it was extremely helpful. And he said to me, he said, yeah, Garth, he said, the funny thing is, though, David's a bit like me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, David's been invited to speak in churches on the topic of divorce and remarriage and what he's done and everything like that. And afterwards, he's been told that he will never be able to step foot in that church again. <laughs> you know, the same thing happened to Andy Palm. I have another book on my bookshelf called Praying Like Jesus, The Lord's Prayer in a Culture of Prosperity. This book is written by James Mulholland. He was asked to write this book in response to a book that was flying off the bookshelves in Christian bookshelves. Christian bookstores. The book that he was told to write against or to write about was The Prayer of Jabez, Breaking Through to a Blessed Life. I don't know if you remember that book, but oh my gosh, it went ballistic. It was a book by Bruce Wilkinson and David Cope. Well, after this book was published, James wrote a good book, Praying Like Jesus, and like Andy and David, he was invited to come and speak in some churches. Can you come and speak in this? And sadly, like Andy and David, he was asked not to come back because what he said was too hard. I've heard the same testimony. I was, had two people in a retreat group in Queensland, one named Andy Kohler. I'm allowed to mention his name because I've asked him. And he was the state rep for Baptist World Aid. And in my same group, I had a guy by the name of Michael Telford who was the state director for TIA. Both of these men were invited to speak on a certain world aid topic that the churches were following to the nth degree and still do. And they would say, look, you really don't want us to come because you won't like what we say. And they say, oh, okay, you come, you come. And anyway, they come, same thing. People got upset and said, you'll never be invited back. 
let me ask you, when you hear things like that, does that sound like churches who have a teachable spirit? Does that sound like a church who is open to new understandings? Or does that sound like a church who comes with a deliberate, decided intent to obey whatever God shows them to be his will? Now, I'm fully aware that we need to be protective of false teachers. I've already stated any doctrine, philosophy or morality must be governed by the word of God. And it's up to churches to do that. But remember, these friends of mine are not heretics. They were not someone who had a flash in the pan moment and came up with some new way to think. They were people who were extremely educated, loved the Bible and held to its teachings dearly. But because of many years of study, God had revealed to them new things, greater truths and things that they could share with others. And it was for that very reason that people even invited them to come and speak. Then told, we don't like what you have to say. Please don't come back. Now I know I'm only sharing you the negative side. But let me tell you, thankfully, God has used these people as mighty tools to help preach the word. And churches that they go to are teachable, are blessed to have them. Churches who say, this is new. This is different. Let's go away and study this for ourselves. Let's go and test it in accordance with the Bible for ourselves. I started asking today, what kind of church does God want Aldinga Bay Baptist Church to be? I suggest that this teachable attitude is always the first mark of a genuine church. I'm not sure, I hope you don't mind, not to embarrass him, but when we had our interview, Michelle and I came and secretly sat in here. And uh, Colin shared how they were going to bring a name in a few weeks' time. And I remember it forever. Matthew prayed about it and he said, Lord, he said, if we have a new, help us to change. That was his prayer. His prayer was, if when this person new comes, help us as a church to be open to change. Great prayer. The reading. So a genuine church. Whoops. Sorry. Is a studying, learning, teachable church. The reading of, the studying of, the preaching of the Bible, its message is the bedrock of Christian faith. It is embedded in the DNA of the faith of the church. To depart from it is a disaster. The teaching of the apostles were very important to the early church. Even though it would have been new to them, even though it would have been different from what they were taught before, they could quite have easily said, these guys are just heretics. They're just a part of this Jesus movement that everyone's getting caught up in. They've only been with him for three years. What could they gain in three years? Seriously, what would they know? But thankfully, these 3,000 people didn't. They devoted themselves to them. They valued them. And because they valued them, they built their lives around the spiritual disciplines of studying them. Do you? What place does reading scripture hold in your life? Is it a priority? What place does God's word have in your decisions in the things you decide every day? Always remember, to live by the teachings of the Bible is to live free from guilt, free from heartache. And I'll finish by taking it even further. What is the message of the apostles? Well, for me, the message of the apostles can be summed up in four becauses. Because of sin in our lives, people are lost and separated from God. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, 
people can be forgiven. Because of this forgiveness from Jesus Christ, people can be changed and now have a loving, living relationship with God as their father. And because of this new living, loving relationship with God, we get to be with him forevermore, every day and in all eternity. That's what it's about. The apostle teaching is the truth of the gospel. It is the truth that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ can be set free. It is the truth that there is no sin too big, too bad, that Jesus can't and won't forgive. It is the truth that there is no problem too complex that Jesus can't solve. Maybe today you're at the spot of those 3,000 people were at the day of Pentecost. Whether in this building or listening online, perhaps today you've heard about this Jesus that was crucified for the forgiveness of your sin and like those 3,000, you're asking, what should I do? Well, we sung about it. You just stand in awe. Accept Jesus today. Don't leave without taking that step. Don't leave without talking to someone about the difference that Jesus can make in your life. So many people here today and so many people watching online have been in the exact same position you're in now. They've heard the apostles' teaching. They heard the good news of God. They've been challenged to take the next step and accept him. We would all say to you, if you are standing at the edge, take that step. Invite Jesus to become part of your life. Then see how much difference this Jesus of the Bible can have in your life. Then see why these Christians, early Christians, and so many more after them, devoted themselves to this message. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that, um, that the Bible doesn't contain the word of God. It is the word of God. I thank you, Father, that every time we open up the scriptures, you open up your mouth. And uh, Father, we just thank you for the journey that you are going to take us on as a church and the things we're going to be learning. And Lord, um, I pray you'll give us a teachable spirit, myself included. Help us to not just be so dogmatic about things that it's going to destroy relationships because that's not what you're about. Father, I pray that we will always come to you humbly, and want to know the truth more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're just going to stand now and sing the last song, and then I'll close in prayer. Splendor of the King, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light. And